Um, the first one is Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 24. And it says this, Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And then I would like you to turn to Nehemiah. Um, chapter 4, um, from verse 10. So that's Nehemiah chapter 4, from verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helpers stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards that, that with me took off our clothes each had his weapon, even when he went for water. And I'd love to introduce him to you. He's our vicar. And he's going to be speaking to us on those passages. Um, and I'd love to pray for you. Lord, thank you for bringing us all here this evening to hear from you. I pray that you would speak through Tim and through your words and give him the words to say and guide him by your spirit and, and give us hearts to hear, understand and, and put into practice. And, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Right, thank you. Um, 
No, lots of students away. It's been a CU weekend away, so loads of the students are away. Well done, Miles, making it back, playing on the saxophone, just about keeping awake. Um, it's been a long weekend. I'm sure it's been a really good weekend. I was up at Bar Spa Uni um, this week, went up with Toby. We had, a good, Toby? we had a good time, didn't we, at Bar Spa Uni? The other uni, as I like to call it. When I was there, I called it the real uni, just to annoy Toby, really. And, but um, it was great to be with those guys and just to um, uh, see what God's doing in the city with young people. Um, I guess today is a, today's a difficult day in many ways for many of us and we've seen the news and knowing how to respond in all that is actually a really big deal. I was doing a family service this morning at St. Tom's and I felt it was really important to, <coughs> to actually spend some time talking and thinking about the reality of what many of us have witnessed over the weekend. I think as Christians it's really important that we do uh, and that we pray, that we give time and we try to uh, take stock of something that's been going on and respond to that appropriately. Um, we've got our um, colours up, I'm sure you recognise, uh, kind of standing with the nation, which is our neighbour. Um, I've got very good friends in Paris. I think Sarah, Sarah Geek's there. She's there. We've seen on Facebook that she's safe, uh, which is great news. Um, I know many um, people in Paris and having lived in France, I know many of us here will have contacts in Paris. And it's just hard to know how to respond. So I want to talk a little bit about it tonight in the context of maybe what um, I feel God's saying to us as church as well. Um, the one another that we've been going to have to look at tonight was one from Hebrews has been read. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. How do we encourage one another to action, to love and good deeds? Often we become paralysed when we're confronted with something like we've seen over the weekend. Fear particularly paralyzes us. It freezes us. It shuts us down and we don't quite know how to respond. Um, I want to read something. I read it at St. Tom's this morning. And um, it's quite an, a sad indictment of our days. You, some of you will have heard me read this before, but it just seemed appropriate to read it. It's called The Paradox of Our Time. The paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, wider roads but narrower viewpoints. We spend more, but we have less. We buy more, but we enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more treats, but less smiles. We have more degrees, but less wisdom, more knowledge, but less judgment, more experts, yet more problems, more medicine, but less wellness, more conveniences, but less time. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get too tired, read too little, watch TV too much, and pray too seldom. We've multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. We've learned how to make a living but not a life. We've added years to life but not life to years. We've been all the way to the moon and back, but have trouble crossing the street to meet a new neighbour. We've cleaned up the air, but polluted the soul. We've conquered the atom, but not our prejudice. We write more, but learn less. We plan more, but accomplish less. We've learned to rush, not to wait. We build more computers to hold more information, to produce more copies than ever, but we communicate less and less and less. These are the times of fast food and slow digestion, big men and small character. Steep profits, but shallow relationships. These are the days of two incomes, but more divorce. Fancier houses, but broken homes. These are the days of quick trips, 
disposable pens, throwaway morality, one-night stands, overweight bodies, and pills that do everything from cheer to quiet to kill. It's a time when there's much in the showroom window and very little left in the stockroom. It's quite hard reading it, but actually as I read that through, I'm struck that that so often is the reality in the world as we see it. And I think when something happens like has happened over the weekend, as has been prayed um, tonight and mentioned by Imogen, you know, we, we read that in the news on our doorstep in Paris, but actually this has been going on in Baghdad, in Syria, for week after week after week after week after week. Someone posted on Facebook, it's been trending quite a lot at the moment, about the, the killing at the school in, I think it was uh, Nigeria, which was about eight months ago where 147 were killed. And it was in the news briefly for about 24 hours and then disappeared. There's an ongoing terror in the world, a violence in the world. But sometimes there's a wake-up call that happens when it's right on our doorstep. And, and for us as a family, we were in Paris just a week ago. And so it suddenly all becomes really, really real. And on dark days like we're experiencing in this, it makes us wonder, well, what's life all about? And it's easy often to, in these days to simply live for ourselves. That's the kind of culture that we're part of, where it's all about self, protecting self, my rights, my needs. And we're bombarded by the media, uh, by advertising, TV, radio, stuff that comes through uh, your door, stuff that we open, magazines, from newspapers. We're bombarded with things telling us what will make you happy, what will make you fulfilled, what will make you complete, what will make you thin, what will make you fit, what will uh, make you happy, what will make you beautiful, what will get you to feel satisfied. And all of that is like a force pressing in on us, crushing us, shaping us, moulding us. And terrorism wants to do exactly that. Terrorism wants to crush our spirits, oppress our freedom, dominate our liberty and destroy our hope. And it has real power, doesn't it? We see that. We see that in people who are terrified, people who are scared. Maybe some of you here are worried. What's it going to mean for us? This is right on our doorstep. Processing it with my children over the weekend, asking, is it going to happen in Bath, Dad? And me wanting to say, no, of course it isn't, son. It's never going to happen here. But actually not really being able to say that because I don't know that. How do we find God in the midst of that uncertainty? Maybe in the midst of that anxiety, in the midst of wanting to say to my children, don't worry, bad things never going to happen to us. Because many of us here have experienced really bad, painful things. And how do we reconcile that? Well, terrorism wants to completely crush our hope. So what's the answer? I talked about this at St. Tom's this morning, but I want to give you a practical demonstration. I've got two, two Coke cans here. Um, <laughs> I, I do drink Coke. I've been trying to drink a little bit less Coke. I'm just going to put one, I'm going to put them both down actually. So we've got a can here. And I just want to stand on it. One Coke can, which is now a lot smaller than it was. That's what terrorism, I think, wants to do to us. That's what the enemy wants to do to, that, to, to us. It's what Satan wants to do. I think to all of humanity, you see, all of humanity, whether they know and acknowledge Jesus or not, is created in the image of God, loved by God. God loves this world. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God loves us. We are made in the image of God. 
And because we're made in the image of God, I believe that Satan hates humanity. And his desire is to crush our will, crush our spirit, crush our hope. And that will happen in all sorts of ways. But the evil, and I don't use that word lightly, but the evil that we see with ISIS is unparalleled in our days, I think. I've been reading a report about, from the vicar of Baghdad, who's an incredible man of God, who has stayed in Baghdad when everybody else fled. He stayed when everyone else left. When all the expats left, when the government left, he said to the church, I will stay. And that church flourished. I mentioned it last week. It grew to 6,500 Iraqis in this Anglican church in the heart of Baghdad. While all the bombs were dropping all around, he stayed and ministered to the flock. And he battled and he spoke out against the war in Iraq and said it was wrong. And he, 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 he said that actually we're looking for peace. We live for peace. But he was being interviewed and he was being asked about ISIS. In his church of 6,500 people, 1,200 of them have been killed recently by ISIS. The caretaker had his small child sawn in half in front of his eyes by ISIS. Four young boys in the congregation were killed when they refused to turn from Jesus. So this is going on there all the time. This is the reality. And he said that this is evil like I've never seen evil. And evil wants to crush our spirits, crush our hearts, to make us like this can, dead and useless. But that's not what God wants for us. How do we respond to that? This can is a bit different. I'm going to give it a shake. <laughs> She's always a little bit daring near all this electrical equipment. And I'm going to put it on the floor. And I'm going to stand on it. <laughs> He's looking nervous. Please, Lord, let this illustration go well. <laughs> there it is. I'm just a little over seven stone. <coughs> <laughs> not even a mark on it it's incredibly strong can't, can't even dent it can't even put a, thing, a pressure into it because what's in here is pushing back far greater than what's outside pushing in see the enemy wants to make us feel like we're victims we're crushed there's no hope it's all over you might as well pack up and go home but I don't believe that that's the destiny for the people of God, for his church on earth. We're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Does that mean we get all triumphalistic and we're kind of blasé? No, because there are battles and there's sometimes pain. But God wants to put something within his people, something that's pressing out from the inside. It's his spirit, a force that's equal to and greater than that which is crushing and pushing inwards. So does the world shape and mould us? Or are we allowing the Spirit of Jesus to do that? We need to feed on Christ. In these days, in these dark days, when the days are going to get darker, I believe that, we need more of the light of Jesus to shine in our hearts, to be consumed with Jesus, to feed on Jesus, to look to Jesus, to daily dwell in his presence, to ask for his power. As Paul uh, Wakely was saying last night, we need to behold his glory. We need to experience the glory of God. Because that's what will sustain us. Ephesians 2 says this. In him, in Jesus, you, all of us here, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's an incredible promise. I, mean, I don't know about you, but during the worship, thank you guys in the, work, in the band for leading so beautifully, in the worship, I felt God with us. I felt God's presence. 
The enemy wants to drive. And it's not about feelings, is it? We know it's much more than that. But God wants to drive. The enemy wants to drive that sense of his presence away. But God wants to give us an assurance of his presence. He wants to because that's his promise. In him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, I think in dark days, God wants the church to look glorious and resplendent. Filled with his light. Filled with his hope filled with his power. And let me tell you, when it happens in the midst of persecution, it is radiant and glorious. So even in the midst of Baghdad, where people are being killed, there's a glory to the church where people are saying, you know what? It's for Jesus. I'm not going to turn my back on Jesus because he is the Lord. He's glorious. It's magnificent. That's why the church... In China, the underground church that was persecuted for so many years, pastors being kidnapped, tortured, taken away, under that persecution, it has flourished. And the government, the government now saying that the underground church is estimated at some 200 million believers. That's bonkers, isn't it? 200 million believers. A church that a few years ago they denied even existed. And the government are now saying. So if the government is saying there's 200 million, who, who knows how many there are? Because the church that's full of the Spirit of Christ can't be defeated. It's an overcomer. Even through pain, even through fire. And the amazing thing is we know that God promises to be with us in the fire. When you pass through the flames, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, they won't drown you. They won't sweep over you. I will be with you, God says. It's that beautiful image of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You know that story in Daniel where they're thrown into the fire because they won't bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar? And he, and he flings them into this fire, which isn't kind of like a sort of wet new wine barbecue that's a bit damp. It's so hot, we're told in Scripture, that when they chuck the people in and they're all bound together, the guards who throw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego into the fire, it's so hot that when they open the door, the guards actually catch fire and are killed. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego fall into the fire. They're doomed. They trust God. They say, you know what, we believe that God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we don't care because we know God is the answer. And we're not going to worship anything other than God. So they're thrown into the fire and then kind of... Nebuchadnezzar kind of leans forward a bit, getting a bit toasty. And he sees that in the fire, they're unbound. They're suddenly free. And not only that, but there's someone else in there with them. I wonder who that might be. We're not told. (laughs) But clearly it's a kind of, I think it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. It's God is with them in the midst of the fire. God doesn't kind of come down in angelic form and go, all right, boys, out you come, it's going to be fine. Where does he go? He goes and joins them in the fire. There's something beautiful about that. Some of you here may be going through fire. Don't think God's abandoned you and left you. He wants to be with you in it. Speaking speaking hope and love. God wants to build a community of hope here, in this church and in the church in the city the one church in the city, the one church in the nation. And in Paris, I've just got had friends who have just come back from doing um, a kind of Love Paris weekend. They were there about a month and a half ago. It's remarkable when the Spirit of God breaks out. Often the enemy tries to crush it. They experienced incredible things there, the unity of the church coming together and praying, saying there's real darkness in this city. Please pray for us. And they saw amazing things happen. We need to pray for the church in Paris, of all flavours, shapes and denominations, that they can be resilient, that they can be a place of love and healing and hope and pray for their nation. 
I want to read a passage from Colossians 2 2. It says this My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. This is the New Living Translation. It's actually a closer translation. It says, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. Now, you may, you may be surprised to know that I'm not a big knitter. It's not, it was one, one of those things that I kind of really sort of felt like taking up. But that, that, that word, knit together, that's used in the Greek, it's a really, um, it's a really powerful Greek word. Sumbidadzo is the word. And it means forced together. Now, I say, I don't know much about knitting, but in knitting, you're kind of clacking your needles together. That's about as technical as I'm getting. Any knitters here? Yeah, there's a few of you. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, Andrew, I thought you were a big knitter. Um, and the kind of this clacking, the needles coming together and this kind of being, being tied together, held together in this kind of... Well, it looks like witchcraft knitting. I know it isn't. But I look at it and I just I cannot get my head around how you have two separate sticks and you kind of clatter them together a bit and suddenly you've got like a really manky jumper or something. I don't know how, those of you that knit, glorious jumpers I'm sure you knit, um, I don't know how it works. But somehow these two things are woven together mysteriously. And God is wanting to knit the church together. He's wanting to do that here amongst us and he is doing that. There's a growing sense of love and family and fellowship and it's beautiful. But God's wanting to do that in the church, in the nation, and in the nations. So that people see there's a quality of hearts united together that can only be God because the world pulls apart. It rents, it divides, it tears, it separates. There's division and disunity and anger and hurt and hatred. But God's love conquers over all of that and draws us together. When I was... Um, thinking about this sermon this week, uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, it was really interesting. We were at pastorate, I think it was last week, and I shared a bit about Nehemiah because I'd been thinking about this book in Nehemiah. And uh, Steve said, oh, I've been thinking about that quite a lot. And at some point, maybe in the new year, we'll go into it a bit more. Nehemiah is a great book to look at if you're into church planting, which I am, and kind of church growth. It's a really helpful book. But I just want to just pick up just two or three things before I finish from the book of Nehemiah which I hope fits into some of what we've been thinking about. Nehemiah is a narrative history. It's a story that occurred, written by, depends who you believe, Nehemiah or Ezra, possibly the writer, and was written about 430 BC, that sort of time. The Jewish nation had been exiled. They'd had to flee. They'd been taken over by the Babylonians, and they were in Babylonian captivity, and they'd started drifting back to Jerusalem. They'd been allowed to begin to come back Gradually, life was beginning to start again in Jerusalem. But it was a complete mess. The temple was kind of rebuilt, but the whole city had been sacked and destroyed. All the walls were devastated. And Nehemiah had heard about what had happened back in Jerusalem and was really deeply moved. He'd heard that the people wanted to go and worship, but the whole place looked so vulnerable and so fallen down. And the enemy could just get in at any point and ransack it all again. Lives could be destroyed. And his desire... He prayed to God and said, God, can it be that we can restore the walls? Can it be that we can build up this city again and make it a safe dwelling? That it can be a place of worship given to you, but a place where we can, the people of God can dwell and be safe from attack. So he fasted and he mourned and he, uh, and he prayed and he was given permission, remarkably so, go and read the book, 
to actually go back and was actually given resources. God's favour came on him and he was given resources and finances to go back and do it. And the story is fascinating because he, there's all sorts of obstacles thrown at him. Opposition. Ah, you'll never do it, Nehemiah. It's a waste of time. Why are you even bothering? Give up. And direct opposition. Attack. Gossip. Slander. Backbiting. All the hazards that are often thrown at the church when the church is trying to grow. It's a great picture of unity together for a common purpose. The body coming together, being inspired and with a common vision in the midst of terrible opposition saying, you know what, we're going to stand together and we're going to build together. We're not going to give in to fear or oppression. We're not going to run away and hide. We're actually going to build these walls in this massive city. It's easy sometimes to look at the whole of the rubble and go, how the heck are we going to do this? I don't have a clue what we're doing. I'm not a builder. I'm a cake decorator. I'm a vicar. I'm a teacher. I don't know how to build, but actually, Nehemiah inspired them. Chapter 1, verse 3 said, Those who survived the exile are back in the province and in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. But Nehemiah encourages people. He stands in front of the people and he says this, chapter 2, Let us arise and build. Let us arise. There's something about doing it together. And church is about being together. Church is not about being a consumer where you simply rock up at a service and just enjoy it. There are seasons, of course, where maybe we need to do that. But the real point of church is that we're all in this together. That we're called to build something together. We're called to stand together. To spur one another on to good deeds. To say, you know what, guys, we're all in this. And we live in dark days. But God wants to do miraculous things in our city. I seriously wouldn't want to live at any other time than this time in this city. Because I believe that God wants to do amazing things. And he is beginning to do amazing things. But the way it will happen, the way hearts and lives will get saved, the way the church will rise up, the way that, that salvation will come and healing will break out is if we do it together. If we build together. Chapter 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind, literally had a heart to work. Something was caught amongst all the people of God, and suddenly, instead of just seeing a load of rubble and going, yeah, that's not going to happen, they kind of got filled with a crazy idea by Nehemiah, who was obviously a bit of a... He was good at inspiring. He was good at selling the vision. And he kept saying to the people, come on, guys, we can do this. There's got to be more than this. And they listened to him, and he helped them, and he encouraged them, and he inspired them, and together they built, and they built it to half their height. There's loads of great things in the passage that I can't go into. But I said earlier on, I said this at the pastorate, you know, there's amazing detail in the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about one of the guys, Uziel, son of Harariah, or someone, who was one of the goldsmiths, and he was building a section. It names all the people who built the sections of the wall. And do you know where they built? They built the bit in front of where they lived. So they took responsibility for the place that God had placed them. And wherever they lived, they looked at their bit of wall and said, you know what? I'm going to repair that. I'm going to put my energy into that. And I don't have to worry about that bit over there because my neighbour who lives there, Brian, he's going to... He probably wasn't called Brian. wasn't a very Middle Eastern name. But he's going to take responsibility for his bit of the wall. And Clive, who lives over on the other side of me, and, and, and next to him, Ethel, they're going to build their wall. And I love it because it gives detail. (laughs) uh, Chapter 3, verse 8. 
And one of the perfume makers next made repairs next to that. Now, I'm guessing kind of um, Chantal or the perfume maker or um, Eric, possibly. I should imagine he had a name like that. I'm guessing that the perfume maker in Jerusalem probably hadn't spent a lot of time hewing big chunks of rubble up and sawing beams. And Peter Jones would be in his element building a wall. But many people um, who probably have slightly more delicate hands, perfumers who probably, you know, he was there. Why are we told about this guy? Well, I think the whole point is that God can use any of us, no matter what our background, our experience, that God wants to use us all, whether we're a perfect carpenter builder or whether we're a perfume maker. God wants to use us to build. And they stood shoulder to shoulder with each other. And they also realized that there was a battle, as you heard. There was uh, lots of opportunity for attack. Chapter 4, verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we can't build. And their enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. So in the midst of building, there was opposition and fear and it could have thwarted the job. And they realized that they had to be ready for a battle. So they built with one hand, but they had a sword next to them ready to engage in the battle. And some of them built while others stood guard with a spear, watching over them, protecting them, keeping a lookout. And around the wall, there were trumpets. So if my mate Brian, who's around the other side of the city, gets into real trouble, and he's building as hard as he can, but an attack comes, the people by him blow a trumpet. And I don't go, oof, I'm glad I'm not over there. That looks a bit grim. I'm going to hunker back down. Now, when the trumpet went, what did you do? You all ran to where the trumpet sound was. You rallied to them and you stood with them and you fought with them and you patched up their wounds and you loved them. That's what we're doing with Paris tonight. Not just here in this church, but across the nation. Many churches tonight are praying for Paris. Because a trumpet call has gone up. People are wounded. People have lost lives. People are living in fear. And that's when the church can rise up and say, we're not going to be cowed by violence and death. Because our saviour Jesus bore the price. He knows what it is to be attacked and beaten and scorned and rejected and killed. But death has lost his sting. And so whether we're building here in the city or whether we're trying to see what it is for the church to be built in the nation in the nations, we need to hear the rallying clarion sound of the trumpet And we need to pray, because prayer breaks down strongholds of the enemy. Prayer makes a difference. We need to pray for the church in Paris to rise up, to be a healing, accepting, loving place. We need to pray for the missionaries in Paris. There are many of them, many different streams, many denominations, to offer hope and love. We need to pray for those who mourn that in the midst of their pain and anger and frustration, that they can encounter the God who is the God of all comfort. Jesus wants to meet with them. Jesus wants to meet with you and me. Remember in the upper room, when the disciples were locked away from fear of the Jews, we're told, in John's Gospel? They're scared. And fear will do that to us. Fear will shut you down. Fear will make you want to hide away and lock the doors. But it's beautiful in that story in John's Gospel. They were hidden away for fear of the Jews. And what happens? Jesus comes amongst them, which probably freaked them out even more, if I'm honest, for a little bit. 
because he kind of walked through a locked door, which is pretty cool, but slightly frightening when you're already slightly scared. And Jesus comes amongst them. Jesus meets them in the midst of that place. He encounters them, and then he empowers them. You know, um, I was saying this morning, um, in that that great Shakespeare play, um, Henry V, is it where he's on horseback? Where he gives that great, inspiring speech, and they ride off into battle. Jesus didn't do that when he met them in the upper room, and they were really scared. He came amongst them, and he just spoke softly to them, and then he breathed on them. He breathed the Holy Spirit into them. Which reminds me of Genesis, when Adam was made, made out of dust. Formed as a body, but actually had no life in it. And then God, we're told in Genesis, breathes into Adam and he comes alive. And in that upper room, God meets those disciples in Jesus. And he sees them like dust, as the psalm says. He remembers that we're like dust. He sees them as like dust, afraid and dusty, fusty, and and full of fear. And Jesus knows what they need. They need that fizzy Coca-Cola inside them to press back where they're being crushed in by the world and by the Jews and by the religious leaders. Jesus knows that what they need is something within them that pushes back. And so he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And they experience it. It's not just words or a nice sentiment. It's not just like a prophetic act that Jesus does. They actually receive the Holy Spirit and they're emboldened. And then they emerge from that room. And the early church is established because God sends them out. So what about you and me? I think Jesus wants to meet us in these circumstances. Jesus wants to meet people who have been touched and traumatised, those who have got terrible images in their mind. Jesus wants to meet them in the midst of that pain and we need to pray for them that they have an encounter with Jesus. We do need to pray for our enemies. We're told to pray for them, to love them. And we need to pray for those who have been uh, radicalised, to have an experience of the presence of God. I've been reading some remarkable stories coming out of Iran of some imams who have had dreams about Jesus and have started speaking in the, um, in the mosques, telling their followers that they need to start looking at Jesus because they've had an encounter with him. In the days that we live in, in the dark days we live in, we need to pray that Jesus can break in in seemingly impossible circumstances. We need to pray for the governments of this world. We need to pray for the doctors who have been ministering there, for the soldiers, for the police who have witnessed horrendous things, the children who are trying to understand what is going on in these days. We need to pray that Jesus meets them in the midst of those things that bring peace. Emmanuel, God with us, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. And we need to pray that he fills them with his spirit. I'm going to finish by reading this. A football in my hands is worth about £10. A football in Messi's hands is worth about £75 million. It depends whose hands it's in. A guitar in my hands is helpful. A guitar in Eric Clapton's hands is priceless. A pen in my hand is useful. A pen in a fantastic author's hand is mind-blowing. It depends whose hand it's in. A stick in my hand is a plaything for a dog. A stick in Moses' hand parts a sea. A small stone in my hand is a paperweight. A small stone in David's hand is a giant killer. It depends whose hand it's in. Two fish and five loaves of bread in my hands are some tuna sandwiches. 
Two fish and five loaves of bread in God's hand will feed thousands and thousands. It just depends whose hands it's in. Nails in my hand might produce a garden shed. Nails in Jesus' hands will produce salvation for the entire world. It depends whose hands it's in. So let us put our concerns, our worries, our fears, our hopes, our longings, our families, our relationships in God's hands now because it all depends whose hands it is in. Let's pray together. Jesus, we live in difficult days but we believe that you are the God of hope. You're the Father of all compassion who loves with amazing bounty. You're slow to anger and abounding in love. And at times, Lord, we don't know how to pray. So we don't know where to begin to pray for Paris. We see it on Twitter, pray for Paris as a hashtag, but Lord, we, we don't know where to begin sometimes. But we do pray that somehow in the midst of all this death and violence in Paris, in Beirut, in Syria, across the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in Kabul, that Jesus, your peace may reign. A peace that breaks through violence into hearts and minds. A peace that transforms and brings life. And that in the midst of death, we might know you, Jesus, as the Prince of Life. That we might know you as King of Kings. And in the darkness and in the hopelessness, we'd find you as hope and light. For you, Jesus, are the light of the world. So we look to you and we proclaim you as King. We bless your holy name. And I ask for every single one of us in this room tonight, for all the families and people that we represent, Jesus, may we encounter you in our midst, in the midst of our fears or uncertainties. May we experience your perfect love that casts out all fear.